I'm Eddie Rowley, and you're listening to My Country Life, a podcast that takes you backstage and into the real lives of Ireland's country music kings and queens. Each podcast in this series features a country star opening up the doors to their past and taking us on their personal journey into the spotlight. Along the way, they reveal their highs and lows, happiness and heartaches, and their struggle to find success. This is the second half of our interview with country legend Robert Massell. If you missed last week's episode, where Robert took us from his childhood in Louisiana to the brink of stardom, do go back and check it out. In this episode, Robert tells how he found love the second time around and how COVID has been a blessing in disguise, giving him time to build a relationship with his young family. I'm Eddie Rowley, and this is My Country Life. I was on a radio station just the other day and there was a fellow that rang in to say hello to me that I hadn't seen in years. His name was Henry Donahue. Now, Henry is from Dublin. Well, he's from Kildare, but he's living in Dublin. He was a, he's a pilot for Aer Lingus. But, a, a, but that name sort of started the whole thing in one way because I remember years ago, Garth Brooks was coming to Ireland. I think it was around 94, around that time. He went to the point mm-hmm. and... His music was everywhere, but Henry and Henry was a friend of Elaine's family, and he at that time he, I think he was he was a piano player, quite a, quite a good piano player, but he, he was involved in, in the Nace Musical Society. So one day we were in his car in his Volvo heading down the road, and he was one of the first people that I remember had a CD player in the car. It was one of these portable ones that you plug in or something. I can't remember, but he had a Garth Brooks CD. Of course, now, I'd been listening to Garth Brooks stuff because, you know, so I started singing along with it as, you know, I, maybe I always do that. I just happen to sing along with the track. And Henry said, you know, geez, you know you've got a good voice. And, ah, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Yeah, yeah. I know. He said, I think you should, geez, you, you, you can sing. I said, ah, yeah, sure. But it, it, was, it was that moment, I think, that after talking to Henry, Henry knew another fella called Brian Hart, who was a drummer, in the area, we got together one afternoon and we into a garage and we started playing a few songs. And I think it was only then that I sort of realized, you know what, this could be what I want to do. You know, I tried, I saw, because in the early years, when I first got to Ireland, I sold mops and buckets for a guy called Morris Stevens in Kildare. I sold insurance with a combined insurance company, which I was very bad at. I sold pensions. I, I, I worked on building sites. I worked, drove a forklift. I'd done all that sort of stuff, but I was never happy. So when I spent, and look, and let's, not, let's, let's not be foolish about it. It was great to hear people say, hey, man, you know, you can sing. I said, really? So this started, this started building. And it, of course, but the first thing I'd done after, after a couple of months after that, you know, I think I sort of done a bit of work with Henry. We, we messed around a bit. But then I thought to myself, I got to do something a bit more. So I organized a gig in the Johnstown House Hotel, or it's the Johnstown Inn, it's called, in, in Nace. I put together this thing as a Garth, Brooks, a Garth Brooks tribute show. And I had a couple of guys from Dublin in the band at the time. And uh, I, can't, I can't even remember some of their names. I think Mark Sisk was one of the guys from Dublin who was playing guitar with me. But I put this together. I got these flashing shooting up lights and I got everything and I got on the phone and at that time Boyzone I was in I was working in Newbridge one one night for Tommy Toker in his garage I was actually managing one of his petrol stations back 
30 years ago. And he had a big venue at the back, and Boyzone came to visit. This is back in the time when they wore the orange jumpsuits yeah. and the black boots. Do you probably remember that? I do. And uh, at that stage, I was working for, for, for him, but he came, up, he came up to me the day before the concert and said, look, we need guys on security because this is going to be a bit crazy. So would you come back? So I, I came back anyway. I'll never forget it. Talking about health and safety, their idea of security at that stage was four fold-up tables in front of the stage to keep the crowd <laughs> off the stage. And four bouncers, I was one of them, in between the table and the stage. Of course, the doors open, and four, there, was, there was only about 400 young ones. I'm talking 12, 13, 14 years of age. Well, they went complete stone mad. The boys came on stage. The guy who was working the haze machine overdid it. You couldn't hardly see them. They were singing out of sync to the recording. There was a backing track they were singing. It was complete brutal. It was brutal. I'll never forget it. But I, 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 knew, I knew then that I had to do something a bit more. So I got this, this gig organized in the Johnstown Inn. But because of my experience watching Boyzone, I was listening to the news, and I heard that I'd heard who their manager was, Louis Walsh. So I said, well, let me, I'm, going, I'm going to find him. Because I, I got on the phone, got in the, into the phone directory at the time. I found Louis Walsh. He was in Dublin. I rang him. He had no clue who I was. And he's like, hey, man, he said, I... He said, look, oh, I don't know who you are. He said, but I don't really deal with country music, he says, you know. So I think I might have sent him a CD. I can't remember how I told him I was a singer. But in the conversation anyway, he referred me on to Tommy Swarbrick. Tommy Swarbrick, Eurovision, you know, the Dolan Band many years ago. And he said, look, he's the guy to talk to. Talk to. So long story short, I got on the phone. I, got, I, I met Tommy. I got Tommy. And I rang him, and I told him what I was doing. And I invited him out to the launch. I invited Louis Walsh to the launch. Uh, Ray Darcy from KFM at the time, now RT1, I invited him. And I actually got him to compare the show on the, on the night. So this huge excitement. Uh, Elaine's father bought me the PA, the first PA that I had. It was, it was there. We had a few lights, blah, blah, blah. All was going. On the night... Um, Tommy never showed up. <laughs> Louis Walsh never showed up. Ray Darcy was there, of course. He was paid. It's a bit like the commitment. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the commitment. And, but, of course, all my, the people that I had known, the, the friends that I had gathered for the first year or so I was here, and all of Elaine's family were all there. And we had a great night. But no manager. No, oh, no, no manager, no nothing. As a matter of fact, I think that might have been the first night. I'm trying to think of if it was that night. No, there was this, another night in the Johnstown Inn when the van was stolen because I reversed the van up to unload the gear at the same venue. We played there again. And the, 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 I couldn't turn the van off because the battery was, was funny on the van, so I left, the, left it running, but I, I closed the back doors, but the van was empty. And sir, a young Dublin fellow was down, jumped into it and drove it back up to Tala. <laughs> For a bit of a spin, so, but that that journey, the, the, the gig went well. It was great, I enjoyed it, but I really had nothing after it, yeah, because it sort of fell on its face. So I was a bit, I was a bit pissed off. Now I said, look, I'm, I I wouldn't give in then. So I got into my car, and at that time it was an Opel Cadet three five eight four ZW was the reg that my, that Paul's that Elaine's father had bought for us. It was had a few years on it. Got into the car and I drove to Mullingar. Now at that time, driving from Nice to Mullingar was like going way out in the country. It wasn't like it is today. 
And I had no clue where Tommy Swarbrick lived or who he was. You know, there's no, there was no um, air codes. There was no smartphones. Sat-nav. Nothing like that. So I just got in the car and I drove. And I remember coming into Mullingar into a shop. I went to the Maxall garage in Mullingar at the time. And I asked the girl behind the counter, did she know where Tommy Swarbrick lived? Oh, yeah, Tommy. Oh, yeah. She was off the Lynn Road. You know where that is? She gave me directions. So I went out, found the house, walked up, knocked on the door. Of course, Tommy opened the door. Hello? I said, Tommy, do, do you know who I am? No. I said, I'm Robert. Robert, right. Robert who? I said, Robert Mazel. Hmm. No. I, don't. I said, I remember I was telling you about the gig that I was doing in Johnstown, you know, from America. <gasps> That's right. He said, my apologies. He says, right, come in. So I says, I told him about the gig. He forgot about the gig completely. But in Tommy's style... He, he didn't want to hear about all the other crap that was going on. He says, well, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to start off as a singer. And I think he probably said something around the line, can you sing? So he went over, got his guitar, sat down. What do you know? He started playing a few chords. I sang a few songs for him. And me and Tommy had a, a great relationship for a few years after that. He wrote uh, my first single. Your first big hit. Yeah, Kick-Ass Country. I'm proud of that song because Tommy wrote that song for me, about me. The, the whole song is about my life and growing up in Louisiana. So long story short, <clears throat> me and Tommy got on great for a while and he brought me into his family, pretty much, you know. And I moved to Mullingar because of Tommy, you know, because at that time I was still living in Kildare. I, 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 I now live in Balnagore. But... Um, I think me and Tommy probably outgrew each other after a while because I was very ambitious. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted a bigger band. I wanted, I wanted to get onto the scene in a big way. And, and Tommy had, he 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 probably had uh, he had a lot of hands in different pies. He was working with Smokey, um, the Drifters. He had lots of big things happening. But I don't know if he if he knew exactly where to put me. So, long story short, I, I, I made another contact then. One night I was playing down in a hotel in Longford, and I heard that the Conquerors were playing next door at a wedding. And Willie Carty, at that time, was supposed to be one of the hot managers on the road. So during the break, I went over and basically spoke to Willie. And I think at that stage I had a tape, because I would have had kick-ass country on tape. And so I played in the tape. He loved it. He says, you know, I'd love to work with you. So me and Willie Carty got together, and we spent seven years working together. Willie, who now manages Mike Denver. Yeah, Mike Denver. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the Conquerors. He still works with the Conquerors. And Lorraine, uh, McDonald's and Lorraine. showband show, yeah. and Keith and Lorraine. So, he's, you know, he's got a great pedigree there. And me and, me and Willie got on wonderfully. We, we, before, we started, before we started a band with me, Willie had this idea. It was him who came up with the name The Country Kings. But at that time, The Country Kings wasn't just me. It was a guy called David Bradbury and Louise Morrissey's niece, Loretta. We joined the band, three of us together. And Willie wanted me to dress up like an Indian. And one of them was like a cowboy. And I, and I said, no, I'm not dressing up like an Indian. Not going to do us. But we went on the road. To, 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 at that time, what, what I can describe as instant success, when I say that there was 200 people. <laughs> I never saw that before in my life. It was wonderful. Yeah. And we went out on the road for a while and... 
You had a big it, hit. It, it, yeah, we, we got a couple of big. We this is before "Say You Love Me" now. Okay, I think this maybe well, maybe it was around the same time. I can't remember, but things were going well enough. But I took an observation from the whole situation. We were doing big crowds, but I was making no money because there was too many hands in the pie. And I was and I, so I went to Willie and said, Willie, I what are we going to do here? I said, we're, we're we're starting to pack places out, but the money's not coming like it should be. So I basically made a decision, you know, um, at that time, I have to either go on my own or you may, you may replace me with somebody else because, you know, I'm, I'm done with this trio, you know. Mm, yeah. and, and no disrespect to David because I, I met David a couple of years later and I've met him over the years, oh, the odd time, a lovely fella, and he's now married to Loretta. They have a couple of kids and they're very happy and, you know, so it worked out well for them. But I, I, was, I felt restrained because I wanted to be out in the front of the stage on my own. You know, so I took the band, the Country Kings, and I moved forward. And me and Willie got on great for a good few years, but then I think once again we reached that crossroads where Willie was taking another artist. I didn't. He he would have steered me down a road of doing certain material, and and which a lot of times he was absolutely right. And say you love me being the the prime example. Because when I heard that song first, I laughed at it. I didn't like it. I said, you must be kidding me. I got a version that Desi O'Halloran done. And Desi O'Halloran is a very well-respected Shano singer. But at that stage, I couldn't pronounce Shano's. And I didn't know what he was saying. I said, Willie, how? how?" And and I'm sort of disappointed in myself. I said, "How how do you hear me singing that? Am I not a better singer than that to be singing? I said, I couldn't understand it. Now, maybe I wasn't, maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> but Willie said, no, no, no. He said, Willie, you know. So I never, I never forget, I was in the studio recording it, and I just couldn't sing this song. And, and, and Frankie was there, Frankie Kula. He said, man, just sing the song. Man, just sing it. So Frankie was getting frustrated because the time was moving on. So I went in and I sang it. And it was the biggest thing I've ever done. It's still the biggest yeah. hit I've ever had. Yeah. Now, I, can't, I won't say it's my favorite song. Because yeah. I've recorded lots of things that I think are wonderful. But, but it's your fan's favorite song. Absolutely. Yeah. Waiting no longer I can stand I know you were trying to make up your mind I've waited as long as I can I'm waiting for you Say You Love Me is, is like um, Billy Ray Cyrus' Achy Breaky Heart. You know, because I heard him in, a, in, a, in a, an interview one time talking about Achy Breaky Heart, and it's a very similar thing to what I say. I'm grateful for the song, and I'm so glad that people like it. But at the time, I hated it. You know, but it's been so good to me. Yeah. You know, and and uh, I do it, and I, and I I do enjoy it now more than I did then because I saw myself as a different artist then. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, you've gone on then to have a yeah. fantastic, fantastic career, but just roll back a bit. Yeah. You, you also did a, a TV, an RTE TV talent show. Where yeah. Jerry Ryan was hosting. Yeah. Let me entertain you. That well, that was back. Me and me and Elaine were still married at the time, and it was it was up in the Europa Hotel, in Belfast, 
of course, I remember when I, when I heard this, mm-hmm. I was delighted to be able to do it. But someone had told me that, you know, as an American, I had nothing, I had no knowledge of the troubles in Ireland back in those days. But someone said, make sure when you go into the Europa Hotel, if you get a smell of paint, leave, because it's just been <laughs> redone again. Yeah. But I went to Belfast. I'd never been to Belfast even. Sure, I'd never been anywhere. So I went to Belfast, and Samantha Mumba was on the show. She was on the series. I, and I'm not sure she won it that year. I can't remember if she won the, the outright program, but this was a big thing, and I, and I have video footage of it. It's, you know, and it's, it's a, it was a very big thing. I had long shoulder-length hair at the time, which was hideous, completely hideous. And uh, I watched, actually, only recently someone sent me the clip of that, and I watched it back, and, and if you looked at me, you'd never think I was nervous, but I was, I was, I was shit to brick. I mean, it really was. I met Jerry, and I didn't win. Uh, Tommy wrote the song, I'm hoping, no, hoping it's live was another one. You Had Me By The Heart it was a great ballad that Tommy wrote. And we thought at the time this was going to be a worldwide hit. We'd done You Had Me By The Heart in the first heat, which got us through to the final. But then I'd done a Keith Whitley song in the final, but it just didn't hit the mark. Right. And I know today, as sure as I'm sitting here, if I'd have done You Had Me By The Heart again, I would have yeah. won it. Yeah. I know I would have wanted. The song was powerful. And even I, I, I even re-recorded the song after. But something happened to it after I didn't win with it. Yeah. It sort of lost its luster. And I, and I tried to record it again, even with just a piano. And for some reason, it just didn't happen. I don't know why, but it was a beautiful song. You had me on the ledge, standing on the ledge. It was, it was, it was, it was a, a typical Tommy Swarbrick, powerful ballad. He'd done a great job on it. You've, you've been through the best years, about 15, 20 years in, in uh, Irish country music here. Mm. Like they have, it has been absolutely f- flying. Uh, you've had the, the, the good days. Mm. Um, your dad, you, you, there was 10 years of a gap between uh, the last conversation you had w- with your dad mm. uh, and somewhere along the line, having established yourself here in Ireland as, as uh, one of the major country artist, mm. you decided to, to make contact with him again. Yeah. Well, I think, you see, for, look, I, I think I told myself, I told myself after I got tired in first, I'd never go back. I said I'd never go back to Louisiana. I hated the place, didn't want anything to do about it. I'd never talk to him. I'd never talk to my mother. I, I just said, I'm just, feck them. I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm away. But I suppose having children, you know, when, when, when Amy was born and I think, like every son, you know, if if you do have a father, and and I was lucky to have one, at some stage you can't just ignore that. You can't just sort of say no. And and my father's our relationship was volatile at times, but there was still a lot of love there, you know, because I, I I knew the kind of person my father was. I took the good with the bad. I mean, he could be he could be a bollocks, you know, but but he was but but he had a big heart, and I knew that. I had to reach out. But I also knew, as much as I know him, that if I didn't reach out, he wouldn't. And the reason he wouldn't, and I figured it out, and I only figured it out in the later years, my, old, my older brother and himself haven't spoken years. And my, my older brother wasn't at the funeral. But my father was very physically rough on my older brother. Uh, in some ways, I, I, I've almost justified it because Ricky was a complete idiot at times. And my father just wanted to kill him. You know, which is not the thing to do. You know, you can't do that. 
So I could sort of understand Ricky's, where Ricky was coming from. He was very hard on him. But when I heard my father sort of say one time later on in life, he said, you know, I did my very best with him. I tried everything I could. I tried to beat sense into him. You know, and I couldn't. So I've washed my hands with him. So I knew when I heard him say that, that I made the right decision to call him at that time. Because if I hadn't have, my father was a slightly bit arrogant at times as well. I know he'd have sat back in his chair, he'd have folded his arms and said, well, I did my best. And that would have been the end of it. And was he aware then that you were this big star in Ireland? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think he was. Um, I'd sent him over a few recordings and, and things like that. So I think he, when, I think when he first came to Ireland, actually he, was, he did a few dances with me back in the early days. And he was, oh, he was blown away by it. He was up on the stage and I have photographs of him. And he, like, he was like Tom Jones up there. I mean, he was, he was loving it. He was loving it. You know, but it, my, my father was always a dreamer. He's always been a dreamer. He dreamed about the biggest boat. He dreamed about the biggest car, the biggest house, the biggest business. And he's had, he, he'd done so many different things all through his life. But he never, he never honed his skills and focused himself to become what I think he could have been. You know, and when, when he passed away, you know, I drove down to his house in Marpaul, Louisiana, and there's this massive, big, beautiful, shiny pickup truck outside. You know, you have to get a ladder to get into it. And a big, huge house down by the lake and a big camper van, brand new, out of the box, sitting there. My father always had nice things, and he, he loved nice things, but he was a dreamer. And, and when he got here to Ireland, he saw what I had. I, we were in the car one day, heading up the road. And I, t I tell this, this story, it's very funny. I was dating a girl from Mayo at the time. And my dad had been over for a couple of days. We, just, we, we had just done a, a night, I think it was North Donegal. And we were driving back, back to Mullingar. And uh, I had, he turned the heat on in the car. And he said, man, it's cold in here. You got no more heat. So I kept turning it up. And I was driving along. Anyway, I got into, uh, there's a place just outside Sligo. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Clooney. I was driving through Clooney. And they have the traffic islands in the middle of the road. Well, I fell asleep and I hit the, the median, bursted the two tires on the same side of the car, came to a complete stop anyway. Oh, I woke up anyway. And I jumped out of the car to ring the girlfriend at the time to tell her what had happened. And he was sort of sitting in the car. He looked out. He says, what's, what's wrong? I says, I'm after crashing the car. Oh, what happened? I said, because you had the feckin' heat up so high, I fell asleep. <laughs> So he says, oh, okay. He said, Robbie, Robbie, do me a favor. I said, what's it? He said, just close the door, it's cold in here. <laughs> I'm, I'm standing on the side of the road, four o'clock in the morning, you know, my, my new car, new rims, just wrecked. And he said, close the door, it's too cold in here. I could, could have killed him. But that's the sort of character he was. And, he, he, and I don't want to, I, I used this word before he died, and I'm reluctant to use it after he's gone. But he, he was a, could be a selfish character. Very, with, very within himself. Yeah. But I, I think I was one of the few people in, in his life that I was able to draw him out. Mm. And I was glad to be able to do that. You, know? you actually, uh, you had him on the Late Late Show performing with you. And he loved that. Yeah. I would say that was probably the biggest moment he ever had in country music, you know, in, in, music, in his music career completely. You know, um, you know, to be sitting on a national radio or television station, you know, the biggest show in the country and... And, 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 he, and he looked completely and total, totally at ease. He did. That's the amazing thing about it. 
I mean, I've been try, I've been at this for years trying to perfect it. Yeah. And then walks this fecker and just stands up there. And, oh, he was natural, really, wasn't he? Is he was natural. Yeah. yeah. So he was yeah. probably frustrated all those years that, mm. you know, this music was in him. Uh, he could have been. Yeah. He could have been Robert Mazzell. Yeah. But it just it, it just didn't happen for him. Um, you also got to record a duet with him before before he died. Mm. We were in the studio one day and we were putting down. I'd heard that song that Willie Nelson had recorded with Merle Haggard before he died called It's All Gone to Pot. Great song. So we were actually in recording that. His wife, Joan, was back in Louisiana. She didn't come on that visit. And she texts, I think she texts me to say, have you heard this song? So I looked it up. It was this song, Like Father, Like Son. It was an old bluegrass song. Well, the minute I heard it, I stopped everything. And I said to Wayne, my engineer, I said, Wayne, look up that song and find it. So we put it up on the screen. We played it. I said, forget about the other song for the minute. I said, Get so I'm like my dad. Well, well, I don't, I don't know that song. He said, I, it's good, but I, I, I don't even know it. But how am I going to sing that? I said, you'll sing it. And he, I got him into the studio, and you know he had throat cancer, so he, his his voice was raspy, and I, and I wasn't sure whether he was going to be able to sing the song because he was struggling that day. It was his COPD as well, but he went in and he sang it like a canary. And we so just just by by luck, Wayne, my my producer and my engineer, he's he's he documents everything on Facebook and Instagram. So he had his phone. So he said to me, "Look, I think maybe we should record a bit of this. We can make a video later." I said, oh, "Okay, what's well, true?" I says, "We probably won't," but I said, "Look, record it." And thank God we had it because Dad was gone. That he was gone back home then, and the song sat there for a long time. And I had, before the lockdown came, the first lockdown came, I had put together a show called The Nashville Songbook, which basically was, was going to, I was going to, I was going to do 50 years of country music in one show. And I had Noreen Rabbit, Matt Levy, um, young Keelan Brown was going to come on to a guest spot. And my dad was going to do a Johnny Cash tribute on the show. We had the, we went in, we had pre-production done. We had, we had so much time and money spent on it. And that was the reason I said, I want this single to go out before, the two singles to go out before the show starts. And he, oh, he was all excited about that. And I, I, I never said it to the people at the time, but the, the tour was supposed to take place in May. He wasn't going to make that trip anyway because the COPD had gotten bad. And he rang me to tell me, he said, it's as bad as I want to come. I don't think I'll be able to fly. So my plan was then to use video footage from different things that we had done, and I was going to do a tribute to him on the night, sing the songs with him on the night. And that, but he said, look, he said, I, he's like, I go through this all the time. He said, I'm back on different medication. He says, next year, I'll be back fit again. He said, I'm going to start losing weight again. He put a lot of weight. He said, I'm going to be back fit again. I will be there next year. He was talking about 2021. I talked about 2021. Yeah. But of course, now the lockdown came, so the concert was canceled anyway. Yeah. And he's you know, gone. And, he, and he's gone. Yeah. He's gone. So I'm sure you're glad you made that call. Oh, absolutely. Ten, to, was oh, it 10 or 15 years ago? Was yeah. It? yeah. And I think, I think um, even as a, look, I'm 50 next year. And if I hadn't, I'd have been awful sad today. Mm. You know, yeah. I, I would hate to have gone over to, to the funeral not knowing him. Yeah. Because in 10 or 15 years, a lot can happen to a person. Yeah. And, you, and it's, it's easy. You wouldn't know them. Like I met my sister for the first time. In years, she came up for the funeral, and we, we connected for the first time. And I mean, I've, I've only seen my sister maybe four times in 30 years. Wow. Yeah. So I was there with her trying to get to know her. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, so if I hadn't made that call, you know, like Leo, I've, I've photographed there with Leo and my dad and Maisie and Amy and, you know, none of that would have happened. They would, and, and, and I think we forget about that sometimes. I, I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be selfish and take that away from them. So all of those decisions that I, the, the decision I made to ring him was the right one. Yeah. You know, and now at least I have those memories that, that, that he, he left, you know. And your, your, your own children got to see him, got yeah. to meet him. Um, uh, he got to see your family life here. Yeah. And you have, you have a great family life. Yes, thankfully. Thanks to the good lady in your life. Uh, well, the, the, the angel. The uh, angel from, in The your angel life. from heaven. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, look, there again, you see, I've made some bad decisions, but I've made a few, I've made a few good ones. And Adele is the, probably the greatest one. Because after me and Elaine divorced, you know, I, here I was thinking, Jesus, I'm going to turn into my father. And I, I didn't want to have four wives. I didn't want that. I didn't want to. I didn't want to have one ex-wife. Never mind four. But I was. I was single for ten years or so, and you know, I, didn't, I just didn't meet the right woman. It didn't happen for me. But Adele was always there. She she she'd been to a couple of my gigs. I had done a gig for her father many years ago up in Calitor. I seen her. I could. I, I spotted Adele out of a, out of a huge room of. I know this is probably cliche, but I spotted her out of a huge room of people. I seen her smile, and. So I always knew who she was, and I was in another relationship at the time, and it came around to the fact that I remember one night she came up to the front of the stage, and, and Adele, you've met her, and anybody who hasn't met her knows she's quite shy. You know, she's not a wallflower, but she's quite shy. And she came up that night, and I got talking to her, and I didn't realize that her father had, had hired me for the gig that we were doing. She said, oh, my dad has you here tonight at the community center. Oh, I said, right. I, says, I, said, well, I said, you know, I said, what do you do? Or, you know, she said, oh, I'm in, I'm in university. I'm fin- finishing off in university. Oh, I said, right, that's great. I said, well, I tell you, I tell you what I'll do is this. Whenever you finish college, I'll marry you. <laughs> and I laughed. Yeah. I laughed at her. <laughs> and, or she laughed at me and whatever. And she went on about her way. And a couple of years, well, it was a, a, long, a long few years later, we got married. And uh, we always laugh at that story, but I, I, I found something. I saw something in her, and I remember. I remember one night we were doing another dance, and she was at it, uh, maybe a year or so ago. But she had a young fellow with her, and geez, I was I was awful cut up about this. <laughs> and even the boys in the band said, "What's wrong with you?" I said, "Because they start. They, we started to get to know Adele in the band, so because yeah. we knew her father." And so I said, "Just see that long, young fellow with Adele." I said, "Who is that?" I don't know. Bollocks! I said, I says, <laughs> I says, he better mind himself. And I, I kept, I kept watching. And that night, she she put her knee out. Oh, geez, I was up, I was over the side of the stage to make sure she was all right. And you know, so, but look, that's, only, only that's when you knew. That's when I, oh, I knew, I knew. And it, and it, it was the easiest decision in my life. Yeah, you know, because look, as I as I always say, in, in our relationship, I'm the lucky one. Yeah. You know, she's she's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm lucky. <laughs> Two you beautiful know. kids, Maisie and Leo. Yeah, and you know we. They're what ages are they? Uh, Maisie's six, and Leo is two and a bit. Right. Yeah, and you know, look, all of our kids are the best, as 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 they should be. But Maisie, you know, she came at a good time for us. We were, we were, uh, we were well married, and we were settled down, and we had the house, you know, sort of set up, and you know. I, I was conscious of the fact that, I mean, Adele is a little bit younger than me, but 
I'm getting to a, I said, I don't want to be pushing children around in a prime at 70. I said, so let's start a family. She maintains, by the way, that she has three children. So <laughs> <laughs> she, she certainly does. And the older I get, the more like child I am. But, you know, we started the family quite early, you know, which was, I'm glad that we did. And then after Maisie came, we had a great, we had a great time with her. We had five years with her. And then I, I think it, we sort of thought, like Maisie has Amy. Amy's an older sister, but it's more like her mammy in some ways because she's so much older than her. Yeah. And we, we we didn't want Maisie to grow up alone. You know, we wanted to have a companion or a pal. And so, and we and we just didn't. I think we we were trying for a long, long time. And I, I thought, well, okay, that ship has sailed. Sorry about that, love. You know, I did I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> but then along came Leo, and uh, I was I was delighted because I've always had this thing in my head about having a son. Uh, because I had two daughters, and even Elaine used to say to me, don't be so stupid. She said, what, is, what does it matter? I said, no, no, it doesn't matter. I said, but just to complete the set. <laughs> I said, you know, I said, I have two daughters, and I just love a little son. So I, I, so I always tell the story. The minute I saw the willy, I was delighted. <laughs> I was delighted. I was absolutely delighted. And the relationship you will have with Leo will will be formed by it's gonna be, it's, the, ex, the experience of your, your own yeah. childhood and your own relationship well, with your own dad, and you probably won't be making those same mistakes. Uh, yeah, I probably will. I'll probably make some of them. I, I, I know I'll make some of them, you know, but they won't be as extreme. Yeah. And, like, I'm lo- I, I can put my hand on my heart, Eddie, and I can tell you that, my you know, Amy is 27 now and Leo's two and, and Maisie's six. I've never had to raise my hand. You don't have to. Mm-hmm. And I've taught myself that and I've learned that from watching the things that I went through. My mother and father were hands-on people. They were, you know, they were, that, that's, that's the generation they grew up in. Like my father would tell you, if, if he said something smart to his father at the, at the dinner table, he'd knock him over out of the chair and to the floor. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't uncommon back then. I mean, if that, if that happened now, oh, sure. I mean, governments would, would fall apart. But that, that, was, that wasn't uncommon in my part of the world. In those days, but I, I I don't I don't operate that way. As I said, I'm very strict, and I, I don't accept bad manners, you know. And you do as you're told. But we don't go to you know, let, let them breathe, let them live. They're only kids. Let them live, let them breathe. And but Leo, he takes he takes things to the limit now. This fella, he's he's going to be a he's going to be a cracker to, to handle. <laughs> but, I, but I'm looking forward to it. You get a taste of your dad's medicine there, <laughs> because <laughs> he looks just like him. Yeah, he, my, I mean, one one day Leo was uh, was walking across the kitchen from you know away from me, and from the back, he's just the image of my father. He just, you know, yeah. and he's such a wee devil. Yeah, you know. But yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to the next number of years with them because this lockdown is, you know, it saved me with them. You know, as much as we myself and Adele probably both give out and on, oh, geez, I'm not going to get out of this house. But we we would have been lost without them. Well, Robert, what a life. What a life, and, and you're still only, in your this 40s. This is only part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's only getting started. Yeah, yeah. Well, we look yeah. forward to the next uh, chapter. Oh, we will, we will. Pleasure chatting with you today. You too, and Eddie. And, and listen, as I say, I don't know if people know that I've known you for a good few years, and you've sort of followed my career growing up or coming up in the ranks in country music. So thank you for all the support. And the Sunday World, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the country music bible. Of Ireland. 
good of you to say it. Yeah, we, we, we do have our country music yeah. fans. We certainly do. Oh, it's do. great. Yeah. Long may continue, because I know now people, but even even this podcast and even the different, I know people are going online now, but it's great to, it's great to have that interaction between you and the fans of country music. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you. This has been My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. This episode was produced by Ian Malini, and the theme music is Rose Gold Renegades by Jesse Frisell. If you enjoy this episode, do consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eddie Rowley and this is My Country Life. <laughs>